Welcome to Managing Marketing and again we're at uh, Boca Raton in Florida for the ANA uh, Advertising Financial Management Conference and I'm joined now by someone who I hugely admire and that's Michael Farmer, Chairman of Farmer and Company of New York and author of industry bestseller book, Madison Avenue Manslaughter. Welcome, Michael. Darren, thanks so much for having me here. It's a delight to talk to you. Now, I said someone that I hugely admire because I worked in advertising as a copywriter for 15 years and when I left to start my own business, Trinity P3, a piece of advice I was given is, if you're going to go down this path, the person you've got to study and, and model your business on is Michael Farmer, Farmer and Company out of New York. And I said, oh, really, why is that? And they said, this is a company that has got the right balance of analytics and, and, and data around agency client performance and also, but understands the, and respects the creative process. So, well, thank you for that, Darren. Well, 2004, I, um, I started uh, searching and studying your company, so it was a real pleasure to meet you. Well, uh, thank you so much for that, although I'm going to have to confess <laughs> that, I, uh, that I'm still feeling like a newcomer to the industry because uh, prior to working with ad agencies, which I started in about 92, almost 25 years ago, I was a straightforward, card-carrying, you know, business school-type management consultant with a, a couple of the big-name consulting firms, and I only stumbled into the agency business because someone called me up and said uh, they were having a profit problem. Could a strategy consultant help them figure it out? And um, and so almost everything I'm doing today, ironically is what I had to do in that first study for me to understand their operations because I'd never worked in an a, you know, around an agency before. Um, I think I made a lucky first guess and that was, you know, an ad agency, despite the fact they're very creative, they're still factories for making ads. Mm. And if you can understand them as businesses that are strategic and creative factories for their clients, making ads that have a purpose, then it's easier to understand them as a business. And uh, I've kind of not changed, you know, in 25 years. I still look at them that way. And I'm still finding today the same problems that I found 25 years ago. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, in that the more things change, the more they stay the same well, in this the, business. The first thing was, when I explained this whole factory approach to the managing director of my first client, which was Ogilvy UK, mm -hmm. I was in the UK at the time, he said, oh, that's wonderful. No one would ever think about doing that who knew anything about advertising because we would never use the word factory. I said, well, what I have to do is, you know, the first thing is figure out how much stuff you make, you know, you, you develop and produce and then look at the fees and look at the resources and figure out what's changed in the way you're making it that is causing you to lose money. Uh, what I didn't realize is that they don't keep records on what they make uh, by a client. They sort of operate from crisis to crisis, week to week, what's hot, what's in trouble, who are we going to allocate to it, and then they move on. And if there's any record of the work that they did, it's in job jackets so that they can Got to pay, go through manually. Yeah, so they can pay photographers and production yep. companies and the like. Well, little would I ever guess that 25 years later, agencies still do not 
either keep track of the work they do, uh, forecast the work they do, or use expected workloads as a basis for negotiating fees. They pretty much today accept fees as a given, something the client tells them, this is what we're going to pay you this year. And then through a completely separate process, the amount of work they do just occurs. Mm. And uh, the problem is that workloads have been growing and fees have been reducing. So that's been true for 25 years. That means that agencies are doing more and more work with fewer people. They have to cut the people because the fees have been cut. Uh, so they're doing more work with fewer, more junior people, and that's gotten them into a real quality problem, which is being reflected in the terrible way they're treated by their clients. Mm. Yeah, because that's you know agencies uh, thirty years ago when I I went from medical research into advertising as a copywriter, so that was a huge shift for me career wise. Wow! But um, you know people say, well, how did you end up at Trinity P three? All I did was I brought the same analysis and curiosity that you have in medical research to advertising, and one of the things that I my frustration as a, as a creative director was seeing this iteration after iteration after iteration of work until either the time ran out or the money, and time is money. Right. And so I, I kept saying to myself, there must be a way to understand this system and optimize it better. That was the whole purpose. Oh, you were so right about that. Uh, I think those bad habits occurred before you joined. I mean, in, really in the 50s and the 60s, when uh, agencies were paid on commission on the media yeah. spend of their clients and that was a very high level of remuneration and at the same time they weren't making that much stuff they weren't no. making that many tv print or radio ads and so uh, if a campaign ran into a second wow. year the agency was collecting money for it and doing no work yeah so uh, agencies were money machines then and in fact they were they spent money in order to hide how much how profitable they potentially could have been so they got in the business of saying look the client wants three ideas for an ad let's give them 10. Mm. and if they gave them 10 they'd go through five rounds of rework they yeah. could afford it yeah. and they thought it was a way of showing their stuff so all of these bad operational habits that existed at a period of time when remuneration was exceptionally high relative to workload are the things that plague them today. Because I think many of the senior leaders of agencies today feel like there was something right about those days and there's something really wrong about these days and what they need to do is to try harder to get back to where they were. But what they don't understand is the economics were non-duplicable. They can't go back to a time when they were paid a small fortune to do a little bit amount of work. Today they're paid a little bit of money to do a huge amount of work and you can't get back there by over-servicing the client. So the rework is a huge problem. Uh, so is agreeing with clients that when a client says, you know, Darren, I've got an, you know, there's another idea that we've got for a campaign. I don't have any money for it, but you can handle it, right? In the, in the existing relationship and you say, but of course, you That's know, we're right. good service no providers. Worries. That's what today's client heads or account people, their leads, are saying because they don't want to lose the client. That would be catastrophic. And they feel it's kind of in line with what the agency is supposed to do. 
Now, it's completely wrong yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we're going through a process at the moment on a regional basis of moving a, a client and the agency from a cost resource recovery model, the traditional retainer, to a outputs-based deliverable value model. Totally correct okay. and unusual, I might now, add. Now, the, we, we are having conversations with the agency where the client will put a scope of work. We then present it to the agency and say, this is the scope of work from the client's perspective for the next 12 months. You've got 24 hours to look through it and come back with what else you do. And they often come back with a long list, you know, like, oh, well, we ran a, um, you may want us to run another two-day workshop on digital um, technology, or um, uh, what about onboarding new staff? And the client goes, but that's part of your cost of business. And they go, well, there's a cost to us. And all of these things were built into that cost recovery They were model. assumed, yeah, yeah to be part assumed. of the... And what I point out to the agency is just because you give something to someone for free, if there is no value attached to it, monetary or otherwise, then it has no value. There are lots of things that they do for the client to in some ways justify their retainer, but it has no value because when you pull it out and start putting a price to it, the client largely says, I don't really want it because it's of no value so, to so me. True. And I, and I think, again, that the old commission system encouraged this kind of stuff because agencies certainly couldn't compete on the basis of price. Everybody got paid the same thing. 15% commission on media, 17.5% markup on production. So they competed on uh, creativity, who won awards, and they competed on who could uh, provide the greatest amount of service. That was their distinguishing feature. Since no one has told them that it's a different ball game today, yeah. or cricket match, or whatever. Yeah. Since no one has told them it's a different ball game, they take their cues from the past and think, we offer service and creativity. And you know, that's the mantra of what, what agencies offer. That's what's on their websites. BBDO says it's the work, the work, the work, which means we work until we get it right. And all of those things run counter to the actual economics of the agency of the business. Now it's a business that where you only uh, can afford to get it right the first time. You can't afford to rework things over and over again. So you need to put more thought into it up front. Creativity itself is not a product. It's an input. And clients won't pay an extra dollar for uh, creative, the, the fact that an agency has won a lot of creative awards. So creativity doesn't really sell. Uh, what clients are looking for ever since uh, the days when they said shareholder value is what we're all about, what they're looking for are results. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing is agencies, which think of their business as a creative service-oriented business, need to actually become more consultative so that they can deliver brand results. Uh, and that requires a lot of analytical capability, not necessarily creativity in the way they think about it. Well, so, uh, yeah. sorry, sorry, Michael, but um, you know, absolutely goes back to you know, what you mentioned before about uh, being a factory, you know, manufacturer. And, and I know every time I've raised that issue, with an agency, but even some clients. They, they go, no, no, it's not manufacturing. And I point out to them, the automotive industry is the best example. Look at the time and effort they put into building a prototype and testing it, 
and then they immediately put it onto the production line and optimise the hell out of the production of that. Now, in advertising for me, especially on the creative content side, but also on the media side, there is the big idea, the strategic and creative idea. That's the prototype. But as you say, no one's actually been paying for that. It's largely been given away for free because when we look at the splits in the fees paid, it's actually less than 10%. Absolutely. It's a small of a, part of yeah, the you know, hours. So seven, or... 7 to 8% of right. the total revenue is for the big idea, the time and effort to create an idea that all the money goes into then the implementation across multiple channels, and that is the production line. You know, I like your analogy of the automotive business because um, Toyota, which is the world's most successful car company, uh, instituted a thing called the Toyota Way, which has been written about. Yeah. And uh, part of the Toyota Way said that you need to engage your suppliers in such an intimate process from beginning of product through production that mistakes are eliminated. Mm -hmm. In fact, a Toyota supplier that, uh, let's say they supply axles, Yep. or brake assemblies or something of that sort is involved in designing the product and ensuring that there are no more than 25 parts per million defects. In other words, they, they have to design and produce a product that's nearly perfect yep. that can be delivered to the assembly line just in time to be put on the car and off it goes and there'll never be any warranty claims. Well, there's no rework in that process. No. And the car companies prior to the Toyota way had a lot of rework. Well, rework is a warranty claim, isn't it? It yeah. means well, the axle failed, the brakes failed, go back for millions and millions of dollars uh, of repairs and maybe liabilities for people that are killed. The agency world thinks that a certain amount of rework is inherently a good thing. Whereas I think if they put more time in up front, they could eliminate it and put together scopes of work and do creative work that really hits the nail on the head and delivers brand results because both sides have confidence in it. So I can hardly think of a, a part of the agency business that has not been turned on its head by the changing economics, meaning uh, fees being brought down by procurement and workloads growing, which requires a different way of working. And the problem with our, our friends in the agency world is they're clinging to what made them successful at a time that doesn't exist. A little bit like, uh, not to poke too much fun at our British friends, but you know who, Brits who clung to the idea of empire long after the <laughs> empire was gone. And that might be very true of the American empire as well. You know, the we sun has set, yeah. The sun may have set on, 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 on certain parts of it. And it's hard for people to cope with living a more um, uh, modest lifestyle or role than one had in the past. There's always a desire to go back to it. But real leaders recognize that um, uh, as you know, IBM went through a major transformation in 1990 from being a hardware and software producer to really being a, a, an integrated service provider. They went from a computer company to a, a consulting firm. Yep. And uh, that was done under the strong leadership of a new chief executive. And I think the agency world today needs that kind of leadership 
not with leaders that are going to enhance creativity, win more awards, and win more business under the current unfortunate circumstances of today, but instead to say, we need to operate in a very different way to create success for today's market. Reinvent the business model. Absolutely. To actually meet the needs and expectations of the And clients. it's a leadership challenge. It's. Uh, I don't think at conferences like this at, at ANA uh, that an awful lot can be uh, Im improved. I yeah. think it. We need chief executives that understand the problem. Well, the other thing we've seen in the last thirty or forty years has been the consolidation through holding of agency ownership through the holding companies. And what we've seen is, first of all, the consolidation of the eight traditional agency brands, and then those holding companies diversifying by growing through acquisition. Now, that's had a huge impact, and I ended up working for most of my career for a WPP agencies, and saw the cultural change that happens there. But what do you see as being the, the legacy that we'll look back on of this holding company trend? Now, that's a very interesting case, because that is... That has that's its own story. Yeah, uh, it's clear that Publicis, uh, Havas, IPG, WPP, Omnicon—they all started for different reasons, but in the end, they put together portfolios of agencies that had the potential back in the '80s to be a lot more profitable than they were. Mm -hmm. uh, example. Uh, WPP bought JWT in 1986 at the height of the media commission time. JWT should have made a fortune. They were making a 4% margin. Yeah, crazy. A couple of years later, he bought uh, Ogilvy & Mather, which was then earning uh, an 8% margin. Now, prices for agency services then were three times as high as they are today, and yet those agencies are making 15 to 20% margins. So, the Martin Sorrells of the world uh, recognized that they could buy underperforming assets with borrowed money, squeeze them to make them perform, get out all the surplus costs, uh, run them on a, on a disciplined basis, give them tough budgets that they had to meet, and as their profits would rise, so would the share price of WPP. And then WPP could use an enhanced share price to go out and make cheaper acquisitions. Mm. That is the old financial holding company game from way back. Uh, in the 60s and the 70s, we had the same thing happen with what were then called conglomerates. Yep. They used borrowed money to buy undervalued assets. They'd squeeze them to perform better. Their share, the share price of the conglomerate would go up, it would make more acquisitions. The problem was that they had to make more and more and more at an accelerated pace, and they had to squeeze harder and harder and harder. Now, by my calculations, from 1985 to 2005, that 20-year period, agencies had surplus costs that could be squeezed out that did not affect their operations. Mm -hmm. They were, at that time, uh, allocating excess number of creative teams to work. They were putting three, four, and five creative teams to work. They were developing 10 to 12 ideas for every brief. They were doing a whole bunch of rework, and none of that was really adding value. So when when Martin Sorrell and John Wren and uh, you know the others that were running holding companies were putting a squeeze on the ad agencies, it didn't really hurt them. They took the cost out. They downsized. 
2000, well, that's good business. That was good business, yeah. and uh, they were rewarded very well. The share prices went up. I don't have the figures in front of me, but if you look at WPP performance up to 2005, it was probably very substantial. And they were the share price was high. They were getting a good multiple on their earnings per share. The problem is they had to keep it going. Now, what they didn't know, but my analysis shows, is that 2005 was the last year that agencies had surplus resources. So WPP and the others had to keep the earnings growth machine going, but from 2005 onwards, as clients were cutting agency fees, agencies were downsizing and they were cutting muscle out. Yeah. They were, they were t firing senior people, they were hiring junior people at incredibly low market rates, they were using too few people to do the work. And to be quite frank, the work was kind of crappy, and it has been for the last 10 years. So the holding companies who did the right thing up to 2005, putting the squeeze on and benefiting from it, have had to continue that strategy. And they have weakened the agencies in their portfolio. They will never admit it. They will never say that that's the case. But the evidence is that now the holding companies who probably don't feel that their agencies are quite up to the job that they used to be, are uh, creating holding company relationships. And Martin Sorrell and the others are themselves going out to sell relationships, drawing on the best resources from the individual agencies. To me, it is the best evidence that there is a recognition that the agencies have been uh, very uh, weakened by the holding company squeeze. Um, now, the holding companies have to continue this. If they don't show continued earnings per, per share growth, their share price is going to take a huge dive. All that has to be is a slight change in the growth rate of earnings, as we've seen at Apple. And Apple mm. got punished. The share price dropped by 10% for a slight decrease in sales of iPhones. If uh, the holding companies go through that same thing, uh, uh, there will be a decline in the share price. Investors who didn't unload their shares are going to feel like they've been bamboozled. The security analysts are going to rush in and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? I thought this was an earnings machine that was going on forever. What they're going to find, and I certainly documented it in my book, is that for the last 10 years, agencies have been squeezed to the point of it's ill health. Yeah, it's a hollow shell. And so when the holding company earnings reports are going out, in my view, those are low quality earnings. Every year, the quality of earnings is going down because the agencies themselves are starved. On those reason. particular assets, I think they've had a little bit of a, um, a lifeline with the media. With the media. And, and this whole area, which is actually propping up. Well, there's no, there's no question about it because uh, if you think of the holding company as having media assets, creative, tra yeah. traditional agency assets, and then research and consultancy in their portfolio. Yeah. The cash cows have been the media companies yeah. and the, the other years. stuff. Yeah. And the, the sort of dogs in the portfolio have been the creative agencies which have been squeezed. And even the digital companies have been squeezed. Let's not kid mm. ourselves. So the question is, what happens if what goes on in the media side of the business, which is fear about the media rebates, uh, click fraud, yeah, viewability, uh, maybe a slight suspicion that digital isn't all that it's cracked up to be. 
and there's a retrenchment and a, a decline or an attack on the media side of the equation, then the holding company is going to have a real problem on its hands because it won't have the cash cow to shore up the dogs. Yeah. That is my prediction, by the way. I just don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> if I did, I'd short them all. And, it's uh, like old markets. You know, yeah, you, you, if, it's if all I knew. It's all a timing thing, isn't it? It's like the people, the few people who saw the mortgage bubble uh, yeah. in the U.S. and shorted you know, all the banks yeah. um, and made billions of dollars, uh, provided they had a deep pocket. Yeah. But I don't know if that's really going to happen. I'm just wondering, sorry, Michael, but whether some of those dogs, because I've seen the agency brands, the JWTs and the um, and the uh, BBDOs, used almost like in an entanglement strategy. That is, get a client in at the dis the basement discount into the agency and then use that relationship to on-sell all of the more profitable areas around that yeah, that they offer as well. Uh, there's, that is certainly the intent. I don't know that they're taking it deliberately at a low price. Uh, I think they're forced to take it at a low price because that's where the market is. Mm. I then think the desire by the holding company is to squeeze out all competitors and make it a, a, a genuine holding company relationship by offering all the different assets, including media, uh, from an individual holding company. Uh, that has a lot of problems too. I mean, it, you could say financially that makes a lot of sense, but uh, it does mean that the branded agencies have lost their luster as uh, agencies who each individually stand for something. They're not as far gone as far as far gone as being representing a typing pool of creatives. Meaning, you know, let's go get Sally Ann or. <laughs> or uh, or uh, Jean Jacques, uh, you know, in on this, and we'll take someone from JWT and somebody else from O and M. But there is a little bit more of that in a holding company relationship than would be the case if JWT were the agency of record. Mm. So um, to change the the topic a little bit, but um, at the conference we've heard um, today, we had the CMO of Deloitte. Uh, was presenting and um, some of the agencies stood up and asked questions about whether their uh, role as consultants and their investment in digital agencies is actually a conflict and uh, she answered quite honestly not if it's not a conflict for the client. Why do you think you know, the Deloitte's, the IBM's, uh, the Accenture's are acquiring especially digital agencies and what do you believe will be the impact for the sort of more traditional agency groups? Well, uh, a very good question, and uh, because I have a background uh, in consulting, um, uh, I feel personally attached to this because I can see why they're doing and I can see how attractive it is. The, the thing to recognize is that since the 80s, all of the consulting firms, including the Deloitte's who were accounting firms, yeah. but all of the consulting firms have said, our purpose is to generate increased profits and growth for our clients. They are totally results driven. Mm -hmm. They don't say about themselves, we're analytical in the way that agencies say, we're creative. Mm -hmm. they've, sa uh, they've said the only reason we exist is to make money for our clients. That's what justifies our very high fees because they are paid more than double what an agency is paid um, for an equivalent amount of work. So the Deloitte's, the Bain's, the McKinsey's, the BCG's, Accenture's, IBM, um, 
are all uh, aggressively pursuing a market opportunity where their skills are totally appropriate. Because what they see happening as uh, media shifts towards digital, which is data intensive and, and allows a great deal of analysis. Well, look, they're analysis machines. That's what they do. That's what they did. Uh, that's what they've been doing since the 80s. They've been doing analysis of businesses and the development of strategies that leads to improved results. Now they see everything moving to digital and uh, they see agencies as being weak mm. in providing work that delivers results. And, and they see a huge amount of money being spent on media. And they say, the person that is being ill-served today is the chief marketing officer. The chief marketing officer desperately needs brand growth. The agencies are not delivering it. We are consulting firms. We can tack on a creative capability to our already powerhouse analytical resource, client-facing resources. Yep. And that's a lot easier for us, and that's almost a natural transition. And she, she did say, listen, for us, that's like adding a, an HR capability, uh, an M&A capability, a cost reduction capability, uh, reorganization capability. Now we're adding a creative capability in digital media. So uh, it is a natural thing for a consulting firm to add capabilities as the market as marketplace needs change. What they're always adding those capabilities to is their powerhouse analytical capability. Now, easier for them to add creative to their analytical capability than for agencies who have very little money to try to hire in analysts and try to embed it in a creative cap uh, organization. Yeah. It just doesn't, doesn't fit. Work. Like, where do we put this analyst? Mm. Doesn't have a home, isn't respected by anyone. Everyone makes jokes about he's just a spreadsheet person, you know, that sort of thing. But a creative, a digital creative uh, uh, coming to a Deloitte or an Accenture, you know something? Just brings That's, it together. It, what it actually is, is Deloitte is providing higher quality client service people mm. to the existing creative capability. It's a very natural fit. Yeah. So um, that and they are used to having a different type of dialogue with clients about what their services is. They will say, our service is to add value, to grow brands through a better exploitation of digital, uh, the digital marketplace. We will do a better job at uh, creating digital scopes of work. We will do a better job of creating, a faster job of creating the assets because a lot of their assets are created in India. Yeah. Um, and we have a single-minded focus on achieving for you what you need. That's something you never hear from an ad agency. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame. It's a crisis because if they had recognized the, uh, the intense client interest and need for improved performance, then they might have changed their business, but they haven't changed their, their business model. They're still all about, we're, we're creative and we're service-oriented. And uh, we feel underappreciated by our clients. And the clients are saying, wait a minute, it's about me. It's about my need for growth and profitability. Are you serving me properly? Are you giving me that? Are you helping me to keep my job and make my bonuses by making me successful? And I think agencies are, have proven to be a little bit too narcissistic for that. Well, it comes part and parcel of the, uh, the creative ego, doesn't it? 
Uh, <laughs> a little bit. It need not. I mean, listen, <laughs> I think there's an enormous amount of creativity required in identifying the client's performance problem. I mean, so that, that's kind of creative thing, but you don't, you don't toot your horn about that. You, you assume it's what you're good at. But let's look at an industry that has more awards for creativity than any other. I mean, there are so many advertising awards for creativity. I mean, I don't see consultants having awards for creativity. No, it'd be, it'd be awards for analytical uh, brilliance. Or, 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 um, or stockbrokers having... Uh, or, no, it, or, is a, it is a me, me, me thing. Yeah. And uh, the whole... I mean, don't, get, don't get me going on, on no, what no. a creative reward is anyway. That is often a panel of other creatives from within the industry. I, know, rewarding. I used to be on those panels. Okay, so, <laughs> so you know. Uh, and it's also, if I get a creative award and it's in my portfolio, that gives me market value so I can leave my current job and get a huge pay rise. Exactly. I've seen that over and over again. So it's narcissistic to the degree to which the award is something you keep mm. on your resume, even if the... The golden, you know, lion sits at, uh, you know, Saatchi yeah. and Saatchi or, or uh, TBWA. Michael Farmer, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion and uh, I really enjoyed it. I would absolutely recommend to everyone, if they haven't read your book, um, Madison Avenue Manslaughter, they should get a copy. It's available on Amazon. And it's all uh, it's at Amazon. It is available through Google Books. Okay. And it's available through Apple. Uh, I don't know if it's called Apple Books or iBooks or iBooks, yeah. whatever the whatever the devil it is. But it's uh, It is not available as an Amazon Kindle. Uh, it has a fair number of diagrams and and uh, tables in it, which doesn't translate well in a Kindle format. But it is available. Madison Avenue Manslaughter: An Inside View of Fee Cutting Clients, Profit Hungry Owners and declining ad agencies. I think you summed it up perfectly. Thanks very much. Thanks, Darren.